Today me and my co-host Alba interview Barney from The Escape Artist. He is UK-based and already FI, and you may know him as he is really famous in the European FI community. Today we speak about how he became FI, what he recommends other people seeking to become FI, we talk about the financial system in the UK, geo-arbitrage, experiments in life, and what he's going to do all day long now. We really enjoyed talking to Barney and we hope you have a great time listening. Welcome to the Financial Independence Europe podcast, where we interview people from all 44 European countries, all of them, about optimizing your life, geo arbitrage, and making the most of your money. This was your hosts, Alvar, Armin, and Matthias. Welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us uh, today on another episode of the Financial Independence Europe podcast. Today, we've got Barney with us from The Escape Artist, and we're really, really looking forward to interview him and get his view on the European FI story, uh, UK specifically, and everything around that. Also, quickly want to introduce uh, my co-hosts uh, who are joining today. Hi, Matthias. Hello, Alva. So, Barney, um, could you give our listeners a quick rundown of like your life story, how you found about Avai, how you kind of have developed yourself over the last years, and like who you are as a person, where the escape artist is about, and all like summarized into whatever time you need. Go for it. Oh wow. Okay. Hi, guys. So, um, I'm Barney. Um, I write a blog called The Escape Artist. I am from the UK. Uh, I was born in the back end of nowhere. Uh, in a kind of tiny place uh, in the countryside in somewhere called Cambridgeshire um, in England. And I think that growing up, I kind of uh, got the idea that it was important to get out of debt and have some money. And my, my parents borrowed as much money as they possibly could um, to buy the biggest house that they could, which is a kind of a classic English mistake to make. And You know, in 1981, interest rates went up to 17%. And, um, you know, my parents had to tighten their belts. So I've, I've kind of analysing myself here, but when I trace back where my interest in money came from, I, I think that that might have been a formative experience. And so, you know, when I, I went off, uh, I did my schooling, I went off to university, I, I did economics in the hope that that would make me kind of vaguely employable in the financial services industry. And then after university, I just tried to get the highest paying job that I possibly could. And at that time, um, my best option was to be an accountant. So I qualified, did my exams. They're horrible. There's lots of studying. And I worked a day job and it takes you three years to qualify as an accountant. And then I moved to work into uh, work in corporate finance. And then I basically spent the next 20 years just doing that and learning as much as I possibly could about saving um, and investing. Essentially, because back then there were no, um, I hadn't even heard of financial independence. I, I didn't know it was a thing. There was nothing about it in the UK or the rest of Europe as far as I was aware. And so I kind of lived in ignorance of books like Your Money or Your Life, which were kind of appearing during that time in, in the US and only really stumbled across the world of FI um, in 2013 when I found, you know, the Mr. Money Moustache blog via Monovator in the UK. And I realized there was this whole community and and. I just plowed through that Mr. Money Moustache blog and kind of realized that I probably had enough. So that, that's kind of my potted history. 
Wow, so pretty much that as a background and fast forwarding up to like 2018, the blog, everything that's been running for like the last, what is it, five years then. Like in terms of FI, what is your strategy, your way, your philosophy? Um, how are you getting there? I just, as I said, I didn't know it was a thing. So I just was saving at least 50% of my um, salary every month. And then if I earn any extra like bonus or anything like that, I just stashed that all away. And I did that just because I realized when I looked around me working in, in finance, that there weren't that many kind of older people in it. So I, it kind of made sense to me that uh, at some point, you know, this, this job wasn't going to last forever. There's a lot of, you know, change in corporate finance. It's quite a cyclical business. It booms and it busts. And so eventually you end up kind of leaving the profession. And I just wanted to make sure that by the time that kind of happened to me, I'd got myself out of financial trouble and I got myself the biggest kind of buffer that I could. So I learned everything that, that I could do about investing. My financial strategy, my investment strategy was a mixture of individual stock picking plus some tracker funds um, later on. But, but in my early years, I was a pure stock picker. So I would try to analyze companies, find out as much as I could about those companies, and most importantly, try and work out if they looked like they were, they were cheap or expensive, um, and then buy their shares or not, depending on what I thought. And I guess I was helped in that by my day job, in the sense uh, that I was, my day job, I was paid to value companies. And so those skills of financial analysis, of, of kind of discounted cash flow modeling and looking at price earnings multiples and free cash flow yields, etc. I was being taught that, I was learning that as part of my day job. And so I applied that in my own investing life. Now, I don't recommend that other people do that necessarily because it's much easier just to kind of stick your money into a, a Vanguard index tracker and not have to worry about that. And, and it's quick and easy and simple and efficient to do so. But when I started out on this journey, I, I didn't even know about index funds. So that, that kind of wasn't something I was aware of. My investing strategy has changed over time. My saving strategy has kind of changed over time. And as you say, you know, for the last four years, um, I've kind of moved into the the wealth preservation phase as opposed to the wealth accumulation phase. So I stepped away from full-time work and now, you know, do other stuff like blogging and various other bits and pieces to keep myself kind of occupied. Also, maybe a stupid question to throw in, but like in terms of actually the stock picking, were you following more like the value investing approach, day trading? Did you also do like those kinds of things? Day trading is for losers. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. So, so no, <laughs> I didn't. I didn't do. Um, I, I've never ever been a day trader. That sort of nonsense has always baffled me. Um, so I knew I knew plenty of other people that that did do it, and they would kind of go in in the morning and depending on, you know, how they felt or, you know, what their what their tea leaves said at the bottom of their cup of tea, they would decide whether, you know, the stock market was going to go up or down or, you know, that particular day and they would take a position on that. But that to me is like madness because every time you buy, every time you sell, there's a bid offer spread, there's commission, etc. So every time you do that, you're just paying a little sliver of money to the financial services industry. And so, you know, they're getting rich and you're getting poor. So 
day trading, I've never done that. 90% of day traders lose, I would say. Yeah. That's why. Um, there's another question. Um, would you have be more successful or have, have had more gains if you just started with index funds right, uh, right in the beginning? Or would you say your stock strategy was at least like 7% um, or similar to uh, ETFs? Yeah, I think um, I do keep a... I've got this monster spreadsheet where I've got a record of every single... Uh, share I've ever bought and sold and every dividend payment I've ever received. So I'm a bit of a sad nerd for that. So I do know that that's given me a better return than I would have got just sticking it in a Van Vanguard index fund. But that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm, you know, doing something right. That might just mean that I'm getting lucky. <laughs> okay. Also want to throw in another side. So at the moment, I'm also personally living myself in the UK. I'm having this annoying thing with the pound. It just keeps dropping and dropping uh, since Brexit and affecting pretty much everything I buy abroad slash traveling. Do you take that into regard into your future plans? Or like, how have you got your portfolio set up to protect yourself against that? Yes. So my philosophy on FX risk is that if you are living and working in the UK, then you already have an exposure to the health of the UK economy. When you're young, your most valuable asset is your future earnings, your, your earnings capital. So if you're living and working in the UK, to my mind, it makes sense to have your investments spread globally, because if you just put more money into the UK, you're concentrating too much risk in one place. So essentially what Brexit has been is a reminder of the benefits of diversification, a reminder of the importance of kind of spreading your risk. So for me, who's just either in, you know, global companies or, or global tracker funds, Brexit has just boosted the sterling value of my overseas assets. So for me, to be honest, it's been a bit of a, a gain, but that's not because I kind of tried to forecast FX movements. I think that's kind of like day trading. It's very hard to do that with any degree of reliability. I just tend to ignore, you know, day-to-day -day foreign exchange movements. I don't have a view as to, you know, whether the pound is under or overvalued. I just try and stay globally diversified, knowing that if something, if there's a shock to the UK economy, hopefully my other holdings overseas will kind of balance that out. Exactly. Not trying to time the market and simply by having a balanced portfolio, whatever happens in a currency, there will always be another one to either compensate it slash um, balance it out. Yes. Mainly try to stick to euros and dollars because in terms of currencies, they're a lot stabler. And since I already have my job in the UK, it's wise to at least have my other assets in other currencies and not everything tied to, well, this awesome little uh, island nation. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for that. It's just really, um, there are a lot of people who potentially want to move to the UK, work here, but the drop in the pound just makes it really hard for them to like either send money home, go on holiday and like, how do you deal with that? How do you progress with it? Can you even do anything about it? And it's just good to know the best possible thing you, you can do is balance um, and stick to that and don't make it too complicated. Would that be? Yes, that's absolutely right. The other thing to bear in mind is, you know, now that I'm no longer, I haven't got a day job, so I don't have a steady salary. So essentially, I rely on my dividend payments to, you know, be able to fund my living expenses. And so I do see volatility in the sterling value of those dividend payments. 
so they get translated into sterling from dollars or um, or euros, and that is a good reason why it's important to have a margin of safety in your spending. It's good to be able to have the ability to spend a bit less or spend a bit more if you need to. That ability to flex your spending is really important because I don't think there's a realistic way to hide from those currency movements. I just know that the pound will always go up and down against other currencies. And so I need to leave myself some flexibility and, and kind of wiggle room in my finances, in my spending. I need, to, you know, I need to have the ability to to flex my my plans as things change. I like that. So like your main source of income at the moment are simply the dividends, you live of them. And obviously by having a balanced portfolio in euros and dollars, I mean, yes, a drop will affect you with a margin of safety and with having multiple big currencies in there, you can kind of balance uh, that out. And I believe Matthias wants to throw in the next question. Uh, of course. Um, first of all, I want to ask if you also have other assets in like alternative finance um, asset class like crowd investing or peer-to-peer -peer, or you just rely on ETFs and uh, like stocks and dividends? Yes, I'm a great believer in keeping it simple with investing. And I know that a lot of people in the in the sort of financial independence world kind of love geeking out about investing and they love talking about it. And They love kind of understanding every different asset class and all these different products. And that's fine. You know, I, I was like that myself. You know, I kind of wanted to try a bit of everything at, at one stage in, in my investing life. But what I've realized is that the biggest determinant of the time that it takes you to get to financial independence is not your investment returns it's your percentage savings rate. So if you are spending, you know, hours and hours and hours kind of researching exotic investment opportunities, every hour that you spend on that is an hour that you can't spend on earning more money at work. It's an hour that you can't spend tracking your spending. So it's fine for people to kind of, you know, geek out on investing and spend a lot of time learning about it, but only if they're crushing it at work, only if they're getting promoted, only if they've got a real grip on on their spending. And if they're not doing that, then they're kind of misallocating their time. So you're advocating for simplicity and uh, putting all energy into like entrep entrepreneurship or a career, um, getting becoming a manager and getting a higher salary and just save that for uh, future dividends and so on. Yeah, I, I think the two scarcest resources are time and headspace. Mm. Other things you can kind of always get more of, but you can't get more time. And the other thing that I've always been short of is what I call headspace. In other words, if you're working a professional job, you know, you might easily, once you include commuting, that might take up 12 hours of your day. If you're sleeping for eight hours a day, you've got four hours to allocate on something else. You have to be disciplined as to how you allocate your time, but equally you have to be disciplined in how you allocate your headspace. So it's very easy for companies to try and distract you. You know, essentially Google, Facebook, all those kind of big tech companies are in the business of distracting you from other stuff. 
and spending more time on their platform. You know, managing distraction is like a really important thing. And just the ability to stand back and think about, you know, where you're going in life and what you really want to achieve. That's hard when you're, you've got a demanding job. It's hard when you've got children. It's hard when you've like managing other relationships. You know, headspace is a scarce resource. I think it's easier when you have children because then you got used to um, spend your time more efficiently uh, because there's no other way <laughs> uh, doing it. Have you, um, have you got children? I got two and um, <laughs> I recognize that I'm now I'm early in the office. Um, I'm just working more efficiently. I'm not, um, not scrolling through Facebook anymore. Yes. So it's, um, it's great. Yes. Um, so by the way, just one more question. Uh, what, you, uh, you said that you achieved FI, but, and you, you're not clicking the like button all day long. So what actually are you doing all day long? <laughs> Just listening to Phil Collins' uh, music, or um, not normally? No, um, blogging is a fantastic way of um, wasting a lot of time. <laughs> so, I, I, at the moment, I'm kind of producing one blog article a week, and that takes a disproportionate amount of my time because I, I do kind of. Um, tend to write and rewrite and re-edit the, the articles. Um, so that's it's quite a time-consuming thing. So the blog is very, you could easily kind of let your life be ruled by that. Um, you know, it's very addictive, for example, to kind of check your page views and check the comments, etc. So you have to make sure that you don't become as obsessed with the blog as, as you might on Facebook or something like that. But the blog, you know, the blog is fun. I enjoy writing it. It makes me laugh. It, I'm not always sure it makes anyone else laugh, but I always enjoy my own jokes, even if no one else does. And it's kind of endlessly fascinating uh, to me, at least. It does bring with it, you know, some benefits. So you do get on the back of the blog interaction with other people. So I do coaching for people that find me through the blog. And something that I'm quite keen on at the moment, actually, is um, organizing meetups for kind of in the real world. So I've long thought that it's great that we've got this community online um, talking about financial independence And that's just provided this whole kind of ecosystem of information for people. But it needs, I think, to be supplemented with kind of real world face-to-face -face interactions. And hopefully the, the meetups provide that. Um, yeah, that's true because I'm, I'm also having this meetup in uh, Cologne, the financial independence meetup, um, I think uh, next week, is it? I have also to prepare a presentation. Good that you remind me uh, of that. You're using the blog also to strengthen your uh, mental muscle, muscle and um, to just use your brain <laughs> and not sitting on the couch and um, watching Netflix and so on. Yeah, I, I, don't, um, I don't find it a problem to find kind of interesting things to do. That, that's never, I mean, I've been four years now since I, I was working full time. And honestly, it's just not been a problem for me at all. I, I've, you know, I'm struggling to think of a time when I've been bored. So there's always... That, you know, there's always something to do. I've got three kids at the moment. Um, they're just about to go back to school, but they're at home all day. And so that's a challenge um, of itself. And that's kind of a source of things to do, um, you know, keeping them occupied. So the blog is, as you say, it's a kind of an intellectual pursuit. But I try and balance that with kind of physical stuff as well. 
So something that takes up another sort of ridiculous chunk of my time at the moment is weight training, which I kind of got in super into about two years ago. That's just an endlessly challenging, interesting, fascinating kind of project that's never finished. There's always more that you can do on that. Yeah, yeah. And um, just other thing you mentioned before, you mentioned that you, uh, after your studies, you just jumped into the highest paying job you can find, like accounting and later on uh, corporate finance. Would you also suggest uh, like 20 years old to uh, choose a job, uh, just how much is it paid? Or would you say there are other criteria? Or Yeah, there's definitely other criteria. And I don't say to everyone that you should do what I did. Um, so I tell people what I did because it's the thing that I know the best and it's real and it's true. And, you know, there's some lessons in there that, that help uh, other people, hopefully. But I don't think that, you know, it's my way or the highway. I don't, I don't believe in the, the idea of this one true church and that only my way is the right way. So, Actually, some of the best career advice that I ever heard, someone, for example, you know, coming out of college, would be you can kind of think of two broad approaches. One would be to kind of get the highest paying job that you can and then be sensible and save as much of your money as you can. So I think that's a rational strategy. But equally, it's also a rational strategy to do a job that maybe pays much less, but that you feel drawn to by a sense of mission, purpose, vocation and fulfillment. So, for example, if someone just felt drawn to teaching just because they loved that process and, and helping other people, etc., then that's fantastic. And if you truly love your job, even if it's kind of lower paid, well, that really takes away some of the urgency to get to financial independence. Because if you're, if you're just happy to do it, um, for longer, then great. So I think either choose the you know a high paying job and and be smart with your money, or you can choose a lower paid job that you get a sense of a real sense of fulfillment from. Then you almost need to be just as smart with your money in that in that case as well. So the common factor is don't just be a consumer uh, slave and and just let your money leak out of your life um, without thinking about it. Bonnie, thank you so much for that. I really like that um, way of thinking and not just like grab the highest paying job, go for it, see what happens. But uh, the, that's the way to go and both ways can work, but it's just too situation dependent to always throw in like the same setting of criteria. And also we'd really like to uh, jump over to the next uh, topic now in the UK. Let's say um, somebody gets started in the UK, gets themselves a new job and uh, starts earning their first pay chicken. Yeah, what do they do? Where do they go? How would you like in a fictive world, uh, a graduate comes out of college or, uh, college or somebody of mainland Europe moves over to the UK and they start working, they earn a normal salary. How should they go on? Like with the banking system, pensions, investing. Um, what's the good stuff? What's the bad stuff in the UK? Like, how would you go on about that? I think the, the first thing to do is just know what's happening with your pension, uh, your workplace pension. And essentially, the, what, I, what happens time and time again is that people just kind of ignore that. So uh, a lot of people aren't interested or feel intimidated or feel that they're, they're baffled by all the, the jargon. And, and so they just ignore it. And so that means that they'll, in the UK, um, be auto-enrolled into their workplace pension and they won't 
they won't get a choice over where their money is being invested. And they may be, therefore, in, they may have the wrong asset allocation. They may be paying too many, two fees that are too high. They may not be diversified enough. So the first starting point is just work out what the deal is with your workplace pension and just do the obvious stuff. Like if you're a, your employer offers a matching deal, then never leave free money on the table. So if, if they'll put in 5%, if you put in 5%, then you better make damn sure that you're putting your 5% in so that you're getting all the free money um, from your employer. And then you need to know what fund that's being invested in. And you really want it going into a low cost, global, all world equities index tracker. So you're just investing in you know, all the big companies in the world. And that's just then working for you in the background, you know, for the rest of your career. Just that spending a couple of hours in just figuring out your workplace pension. For many people, that's the best use of two hours or three hours that they can possibly do. And certainly better than figuring out kind of exotic investment options. So just just kind of getting those basics in place would be where someone should start. And then, you know, so once you've kind of got your workplace pension um, sorted, you should just know about the tax breaks in the UK and the tax advantage savings accounts like, um, like the ISA. And you can then put in up to £20,000 per year in that and shield savings um, from, from the tax man. And again, that can just go straight into a Vanguard or World Tracker Fund and just be working away for you, invested for the long term while you're getting on with other stuff. And really, the aim should just be to set it and forget it. You know, just get your finances set up so that at the end of each month, when you get paid, you then you pay yourself first, essentially. So a chunk of your money just goes straight into out of your bank account it goes straight over to your online platform and just gets automatically invested into a tracker fund. All of that just happens without you lifting a finger. It's all on automatic pilot. And that way you get the, the kind of consistency, that way you get the benefits of pound cost averaging. You spread your investment timing, you know, over the years that you're working. So the more that you can kind of set it and forget it, the better. I really like that and also like you gave specific with all the tax bonuses that come towards lifetime ISS for the first 4,000 you put in and like that, that's what I do personally. I uh, try to stick to the match my employer is giving me but besides that really try to take advantage of all the tax uh, bonuses that are offered within accounts. Uh, but I do have to say I stop after the tax bonuses are given, like within the lifetime eyes at the first 4,000 that are topped up with 25%. But afterwards, um, it's obviously nice to leave it within it in um, a protected environment with free growth, but it also has its downsides with being able to take it out and tax penalties if you would actually want to take it out earlier for any other purposes than buying a house it's yeah I, I like the system in the uk but i do also see like the limitations it can bring with it hold on though you're talking about the the lifetime isa and remember though that everyone has a conventional normal isa which isn't there's no restrictions on your ability to take money out of that so everyone has got a twenty thousand pound a year isa allowance and i could put on the first day of the tax year the 6th of april i could put £20,000 into my platform and buy the Vanguard All World Equities ETF. 
And then if I want to take that money out, you know, in three months' time, I always have the option to do that. Now, clearly, it's better when you put money into the stock market to uh, have a longer time horizon than three months. You know, ideally, you know, you want it there for years, not months. But ISAs do give you the option to get your hands on the money and to liquidate it and turn it back into cash. Would you recommend to people um, of other European countries to go to the UK to maybe uh, get FI faster? Well, that has been essentially a large part of what's driven the growth of London. You know, London has really expanded over the 20, 25 years that I was working. You know, I saw a huge number of people come in from all over the world, but particularly from the rest of Europe, you know, attracted by the ability to earn some high salaries, kind of reasonably favourable financial services menu, if you like, lots of choices in how to invest your, your money and a reasonably benign regulatory environment. So lots of people have done that. And I think it, it makes sense, particularly, you know, if you were working in finance, then London was kind of the place to be. It was probably the biggest European financial center. And therefore, that's been something that a lot of Europeans have done. Having said that, there's lots of other industries where that wouldn't apply. And, and, um, and that the UK, you know, it just wouldn't make sense to move to the UK because your, your job opportunities would be worse. I think you guys hit the nail on the head earlier. You know, all advice is contextual. All good advice is contextual. It all depends on the individual, where they are in their life situation, what their job prospects are at home versus um, somewhere else. So that will always depend. But I think the willingness to move is just a huge, huge advantage. You know, that ability to say, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm not just going to sit here, wherever you might be, and accept a poor situation. I'm going to get up and move. I mean, tradition, that's been one of the weaknesses in the UK. You know, you've had people born in areas where there aren't many jobs, unable to, unable or unwilling to move to where there have been more jobs somewhere else in the country. And so... The, the ability to do that, the willingness to do that, that kind of drive, that get up and go, I think that's an essential part of the mindset that it takes to get to financial independence. That's true. I, um, do you think that people are still coming to, for example, London? London? Um, I have the feeling that more people coming to Germany, like Frankfurt or Berlin now to work, uh, um, does that, uh, has that changed over time in your Perception? I don't have the stats on that. And clearly, for obvious reasons, there's some uncertainty now around Brexit, etc. You know, who knows what will happen in the future? That's why it's kind of back to the point that all advice is contextual. You know, what may have worked 20 years ago in a, in a career may no longer be the best thing to do um, today. So, for example, when I was choosing a college course and choosing a career, I didn't feel that I was born to be in financial services. Um, Not, not at all. You know, I was never actually particularly strong at maths at school. It was just very obvious at that point in history, at that point in the UK, that financial services was booming. And therefore, that was the place where the money was. It's like the joke about the bank robber, you know, who's asked why he robs banks and answers because that's where the money is. So maybe today, if I was just choosing a university course, I might choose something different. I might choose computer science, for example, rather than economics. 
if I thought that would give me a better entry point, you know, into tech and into access to those kind of tech salaries. And in particular to the the freedom and the flexibility that comes from the fact that in, in the tech industry, the norm is often not full-time employment kind of chained to your desk, it's contracting. And so there's a very kind of established, very established industry in the UK of IT workers working for themselves and kind of hiring themselves out to their employer or to their, their current client. And that very much, that's very much consistent with the FI mentality, not, not only because they're, those guys are uh, pretty well paid, but also because they never get that kind, they never get overly comfortable at one employer. They, they always realise that they're going to need to find another firm to contract with once the current contract's over. And so that, that engenders more of a kind of I'm working for myself mentality. It discourages lifestyle inflation because if you don't have this kind of this trap of a safe looking job where it's okay to kind of spend all your money one month because there's always next month's salary. That contractor model, I think, in many ways, um, is very attractive and might be, if I was coming out of university today, what, what I'd be looking at. Cool, Bob. Well, I think we've got enough content. We'll find an amazing topic to discuss together in a future episode. Okay, brilliant. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Bonnie, so much. And also still have to say goodbye from Araminta. She had to leave already, but she wanted to say thank you so much for coming on. And uh, yeah, you're an awesome guy. That's what she wanted to say. <laughs> cool. <laughs> She's sweet. All right. Thank you very much, right. Bonnie. Cheers, guys. Thank you. See Bye-bye. You. Bye. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. We hope you learned something new and enjoyed the show. You can support us by doing this. Subscribing through your favorite podcast program and leaving us a review. Following us on Instagram and Twitter at Financial Independence Europe. Sending us an email with questions and feedback. We would love to hear from you. All the mentioned articles, books and cool resources can be found in the show notes at financial-independence.eu. Thank you for listening and see you next time.